Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor, and today I'm joined by Mina B., a licensed social worker, mental health educator, and author of the book, Owning Our Struggles. With a background in psychotherapy focused on anxiety, depression, and trauma, Mina has worked across various mental health sectors, including early childhood programs, private practice, and community mental health. Holding a graduate degree from New York University, Mina is also the founder of Mina B Consulting, specializing in developing psychological safety within organizations. As a mental health educator and coach, Mina emphasizes the connection between mental health and social justice. Based in New York City, Mina is dedicated to empowering others and fostering supportive connections for personal and societal growth. We're excited to have Mina with us today to discuss self-efficacy, building community, and her debut book, Owning Our Struggles, A Path to Healing and Finding Community in a Broken World. Mina, welcome to the show. Hi, Graham. It's so nice to have you here with us. Thanks for joining us. Hey, you know, Mina, I shared in our introduction that you focus your work around developing self-efficacy and the building of community. And I know you're a first-generation Panamanian and Colombian, and you grew up in a multi-generational household that emphasized the importance of community and togetherness, it sounds like. How has this upbringing and your cultural background, as well as maybe your own personal experiences throughout your life, come into your own personal life just personally, but also professionally? Well... Because I grew up in an immigrant household and I was raised by two immigrant parents and both of my parents migrated to the U.S. in their 20s. So they were adults, you know, and so I was pretty much raised in a Panamanian and Colombian household. And in our culture, pretty much community is at the center of what we do. You know, you're not just raised by your mother and your father. You're raised by your aunts, your uncles potentially your siblings, and you have a bunch of people in your life who you're not even related to by blood, but you're calling them auntie, you're calling them uncle. I have a few people in my life who I call mom, and I have a few people in my life who I call dad, right? That is just a part of our cultural influence, you know, and it's all I saw growing up. I think especially because my parents migrated here, our home was the hub for other family members who wanted to migrate to America also. So coming from just this large family, as well as this cultural background that centered the importance of relationships and people is how I moved through the world. It was always important for me to have friends. It was always important to me to have just people in my life that I could rely on when I needed care, comfort, and support even if those people were not tied to me by blood. And so I do think that, you know, growing up in my home as a child, I saw things differently compared to maybe my American peers, where we really centered the importance of people outside of our nuclear family. You know, in my household, everybody was your family, pretty much, you know. And so it's really something that stuck with me personally, but then it navigated through my life professionally and just how I saw relationships, the importance of relationships. And when it comes to mental health, it played a big role in how I see people being able to heal. I think that 
We can't heal to exist in a vacuum. We must heal so that we can learn how to integrate into community and develop safe and supportive networks. And so outside of our nuclear family, who do we have? Sometimes your nuclear family isn't even safe, you know? And so having people in your life that you can lean on through intimate circles, through friendships, and just people that you know plays a vital role in your mental health and well-being. Yeah, I, I love that. What a what a wonderful opportunity. I love what you're saying. I live in Hawaii, and I've been here for 40 years. I grew up in Los Angeles and good upbringing, good family there. But when I came to Hawaii, it was very unique. It's very much what you're describing. Everybody here is auntie. Everybody here is uncle. Everybody is here, you know, and, and everybody's kind of hugging and kissing on each other. It's that kind of that community where you're growing up and sometimes even people will hanai their child out. They'll give their child maybe to another family member to raise or kind of the community sense. And you're saying in your upbringing, community was central. And well, yes. what a what a wonderful phrase. It was central to everything. In fact, it sounded like you knew nothing else. And that's how no, you're saying, I moved, I moved through the world. And, you know, and how you bring that into your professional life. I think a lot of times our mental health is not only benefited by the community, but it's also a root of where mental disorders develop when we have disconnection, where we are in isolation, and we're apart from a system that can really help us through life and through difficult times. I'm sure you see that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll even add to the fact that sometimes community is where ruptures happen. And that is how isolation, you know, happens because people are running from people as a result of maybe having childhood trauma. So if your family system isn't safe, you struggle with finding trust and safety in strangers and developing safe relationships. And then in our society, you know, hate exists. And so when you move through the world and you're experiencing different forms of hate, for your identity, for being who you are, things that you have no control over, it makes you want to isolate and it makes sense, right? And so I often find that because ruptures often happen in relationships, people tend to feel like the only way to heal is through self-healing and through isolation. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that healing actually happens in relationship. And so the same way ruptures can take place in relationships Healing also takes place in relationships because we need people. I know a lot of people may be familiar with attachment theory, but for those who are not from the time a child is born, right? A child needs care, love, affection, and attention from their parent, right? That bonding helps them develop self-esteem. It helps them develop confidence. It helps them feel safe as they move through the world. And attachment doesn't stop when that infant now becomes a toddler or when that toddler turns into a young child or an adult, we're always forming attachments with people. And so I do understand that being around people can be difficult when there's a lack of psychological safety and there's a lack of trust. And that is why my work really not only focuses on community and relationships, but teaching people the skills on how to be better community members and also learning how to use discernment and know who do I run to? Who are the people in my life that I want to be around and who are the people who deserve to be in my life? Because everyone is not going to be for you. We all have to do this healing work and some people choose not to do it. So when I talk about community, it's also about one, holding yourself accountable as a community member, 
but also asking yourself, who deserves to be in my space? You bet. I love that. You know, you're talking about how relationships can be so negatively impacting to us. They actually create our greatest ills, our sometimes our mental, you know, illness and how it can so impact us. But relationships can also be curative. And I love what you're saying here is that we sometimes have to teach folks where the healthy relationships are because we grow up with certain, you know, templates and familiarity, and we typically find what we know. And sometimes we keep finding the dysfunction that we're leaving, trying to find health and maybe healing in people that are more of the same, but we don't recognize that because we're just finding people that we're familiar with. So you're teaching people a really important skill that not everybody deserves to sit at your table. You're saying that 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 you need to find people, you need to know what to look for, what you're coming out of and what's going to be healing. In fact, you talked, I read, as I was reading a little bit about you, I know that you started some of your early work at the Betty Ford Clinic and you enjoyed helping clients, you know, through that one-on-one work, but you were saying that you found that the group therapy piece is a great setting for allowing the most transformation. And it sounds like that's what you're saying here. If we can find that community to really heal, there's something really transformative and almost magical about that group healing process, isn't there? Healing within community. Mm, Right. You know, when I was at Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, that was when I was interning as a graduate student. Mm. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful journey for me entering the field, (laughs) you know, because we were required to meet with our group four times a week. It was very, very intensive. Mm -hmm. And just seeing the transformation for these clients For those people who are not familiar with Hazelden Betty Ford, it is a substance abuse treatment center. And so my clients were struggling with substance abuse ranging from drugs and alcohol. And so at the root of every story, there is some sort of trauma. There is some sort of pain that a person may have gone through that led them to maladaptive coping behaviors. And so using drugs and using substances as a way to cope with the tragedy and the trauma that they experienced. And so here you had all of these people. I think we always had about 12 to 15 people in a group. And these are people who struggle with childhood trauma. These are people who were molested. These are people who were abused. These are people who experienced so much pain, even within their nuclear family. And what was so beautiful is the way others showed up for them. Uh-huh. Here are these people who grew up feeling like their their emotions were belittled. They were never cared for. It wasn't modeled to them what love and a nurturing relationship was. And here they are in this group with a bunch of strangers who are modeling to them, you are deserving of love. You are deserving of being nurtured. You are deserving of care. There's also vulnerability in this space where we're not judging each other. I've been through the things that you've gone through. And even if I haven't, I'm here to hold space for you. And so that was such a beautiful process for me as a social worker and someone entering this field, really being able to see how relationships can be so healing when there is psychological safety, when there is trust, when there is an intent to listen, to understand and not judge. Mm. And most importantly, when we all are here to heal together versus feeling like it's a race of who's going to get better first. And it's not that, right? It's all about how can we 
work on healing together. And if you are struggling, how can I support you? And when I'm struggling, who's going to be there for me? And that really set the tone for the work that I, I did as a therapist moving forward. What a great way to explain that. You know, you're talking earlier too about when we're injured and, and, and wounded and there's a tendency for us to isolate, you know, and what in that isolation is so easy for there to be the development of shame. You know, shame is about who I am. And what you're raising here and the way you're looking at this is you're kind of depathologizing this whole substance use. You're saying it's not who you are. It's, hey, what happened to you mm -hmm. in your life? Not This is not who you are. This is what happened to you. And maybe this has been your best way to cope. And what has happened to you? Maybe are there other, maybe there's a couple of things. One, to heal what happened to you and maybe find more adaptive other ways to cope. But within the context of this community that's saying, hey, we're all here. We've all gone through something similar. We have our own unique story, but there's a thread that runs throughout the whole group and the individuals there. How might we support each other in that really that healing way and to depathologize that shame and then to get some control over these things? And, you know, I know you talk about in your practice and you teach self-efficacy in this process of healing within the context of community. Define this concept for us and how you teach this and how you see it being part of a shared healing process for folks. Yeah. So self-efficacy is really important to the work that I do. And it pretty much is a person's belief in themselves that they have the ability to change. You know, it's the belief in yourself that you have the ability to do hard things. And the reason why this is important to me as a social worker and just in the work that I do overall is because trauma can strip us of our power. Yeah. And I find that from working with my clients and just seeing, you know, just the way people show up in the world and the tragedies that exist online and the things that we're exposed to, when we are exposed to trauma continuously, we can develop something called learned helplessness, where we feel like we have no control. We feel like we are helpless individuals and that there's no way to experience joy or satisfaction because there are so many things that are outside of our locus of control. And so what we do is we just say, well, because the world always has trauma and the world has always had painful experiences and maybe in my own personal life, I've always dealt with adversity. There's no possible way I'm going to get better, Mina. There's no possible way that I'm going to experience joy or gratitude. So what is the point There's of no doing hope. any of this? There's no hope. It strips yeah. you of your hope. Yeah. And so a big part of my work is really working with my clients and just working with the general public now that I'm an educator, giving people the tools that they need to develop and strengthen their self-efficacy so that they can start to tap into their power and recognize what is in their locus of control. Mm -hmm. Because I write this in my book, adversity isn't going anywhere. <laughs> I, I wish I could say and make promises and say, if you go to therapy and if you do all of this healing work, your life is going to be perfect and your life is going to be healed and hold until the day you die. 
And I'm sorry to break it to you, but we're all going to be on this healing journey until the day we die. Because adversity is always going to be here. And when we reflect on history, trauma has always existed on a societal and an environmental level. None of this is new. It's painful to deal with and manage. But I think a big part of self-efficacy is leaning into radical acceptance for what the truth is and asking ourselves, what do I have control over that can help lead me toward a life that I feel I deserve to live? What yeah. do you think you deserve in life? And how can you lean toward those things through action? Yeah. Because when you feel powerless, it's easy to complain. It's easy to give up. And it's easy to say, you know what? There's nothing that I can do because everything that exists around me is hard. But self-efficacy is about, well, what do you believe that you can do? And let's take some baby steps to get there. It's kind of like that person who goes to the gym for the very first time and tries to pick up 50 pounds. It's not going to happen. You're going to break your back, right? It's not going to happen. But your belief in yourself is, you know what? My goal is to be able to lift 50 pounds. And so I need to start small. Maybe I'm going to start with the five pounds. Then I'm going to increase as time goes on because I need to build that muscle. And that is what self-efficacy looks like when you're trying to build it. It's about taking those baby steps and saying, what are the areas in my life where I have allowed myself to be stripped of my power? And how can I start reclaiming that by doing really small things to really build that self-efficacy muscle? Because I know that I deserve a life of joy and gratitude. And I can also recognize that in the midst of me achieving those things, there's still going to be adversity that happens around me. And so it's about the duality of our emotions and the power of and. I deserve joy and I also recognize that adversity exists versus adversity exists, therefore I can't have joy. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental health first aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide mental health first aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through mental health first aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community. What a wonderful and what an important reframe that you're having people kind of maybe see for the very first time. And you know, a lot of times our templates define everything in our lives and we see ourselves with a learned helplessness or maybe an external locus of control where I'm only as good as those things around me are going. And if they're not going well, then I'm not doing well. And that's a learned thing. And it's not like, well, hey, just snap yourself out of it. That's sometimes all people have learned. That becomes a very integrated way of being. And what you're talking about is some really cool stuff around 
What if maybe for the very first time with your help and what you're saying here in, in your book, we're going to get into in just a moment, maybe for the first time people are understanding, maybe I am deserving and maybe I can shift through this self-efficacy building how I've been going about and going through the world and maybe come to learn about myself for the very first time in my life. Because I always thought this about myself. I thought this was who I am and my meaning. But maybe that's not my true self. And that's what you're trying to hold up to folks to say, what if we were to discover who you really are and what your potentials really may be? And what if we were to not just recognize those, but to buff that potential out to its fullest capacity? And what if we do it together kind of in community? Absolutely. You know, it's really all about reconstructing your beliefs and values. That's right. Your beliefs and values within the external world, but most importantly about yourself. Because as you mentioned, that template, a lot of us don't really realize the impact our childhood can have on us, even as adults. And some of us are still operating with the template from our wounded past. And so if I grew up in a dysfunctional home, if when I was a child, I experienced really dysfunctional or chaotic things, that can dictate how I move through the world now. And it's really about being able to do the work of deconstructing that. And that self-efficacy part comes in where it says, I'm not five anymore. I'm an adult. You know, I, I have to teach this a lot, for example, when I'm giving people skills on how to develop boundaries. Because when I hear their boundary templates, the first thing they do is they go back to the way their needs were not met as children. And how this person is going to respond because that is what they saw growing up. And I have to remind people, but remember, you're not a powerless five-year-old anymore. You're not a child who has to depend on a parent to tell you what to do or meet your needs. Remember what it means to be an adult and the power that you hold in your own level of self-agency and self-autonomy. And because we deal with so many difficult things, our agency gets stripped of us. And so it's really all about teaching people what it looks like to tap into their own agency and recognize there are things that I deserve. There are things that I have a right to say no to. I have choice. I have opinion. And I have a right to declare those things as an adult. And that's such a powerful set of statements right there. But we both know that that's easier said than done. And what we know is that if it were that easy, we would just do it, right? You and I would happily be out of a job if we could just kind of change our thinking and people could a- a begin to shift into, oh, you did. I just need more boundaries. I need to feel more deserving. So part of what you're saying is such an important piece, and I think this is important for our listeners as well, is that if we've constructed this template unknowingly, it's been constructed for us. As children, we're not constructing anything. We're just a we're just part of our environment. So this is what we know to be true and what to, we, what we know to be life working as. And we leave our families and then we find it in community other ways. So we tend to repetition compulsion. I'm compelled to repeat those patterns of behavior, hoping to put a different ending on the same old beginning. So I keep finding more of the same. And what do I get? More of the same in the ending. What you're raising is such an important piece. If we've constructed something or had it constructed for us, we get to be in charge of reconstructing it. Maybe deconstructing it first, appreciating what did I grow up in? What have boundaries, this idea of boundaries makes sense to me. But if I were to do a boundary in my family, I would have had the snot beat out of me. Or people would have given me the cold treatment or walked away. Or maybe my parents would have started fighting. Or maybe someone would have said, why do you think you're deserving of that? 
So I am so opposed to taking the risk of doing boundaries or even communicating my needs. You know what it would have been like if I were to communicate my needs to my family? They would have ignored me. They would have laughed at me Would they've done all of these things. Or maybe my family didn't have the ability to, to respond in ways that I wished I, you know, they could have. So you're talking about having to appreciate how that got constructed, that template. And then you're talking about, can I introduce something new to you? A whole different way of thinking. You're not just five, but you've only learned how to think as a five-year-old. What if there are healthier, more adaptive adult ways to think? And that's a whole process of therapy right there, isn't it? Right, right. Absolutely. That is a big part of the process of the deconstructing and the reconstructing. Right. And even when you talk about things being easier said than done, because that is such a common <laughs> common um, statement, right, that comes up in this healing journey. And right. one of the things I have to remind people is that, you know, a statement that I encourage people to reflect on is, am I willing to experience discomfort to get the things that I want out of life? Mm-hmm. I think the goal of wanting everything to be easy is why a lot of people struggle and they stay in their suffering because we're not telling ourselves that we have the power to do hard things. But the truth also is sometimes we are not willing to do hard things. But here's why, and, but, here, but here's, but here's what I didn't mean to interrupt, but here's what I think is so cool about your message. By myself in isolation, I'm not going to take that risk. I'm not going to, because... Even though I'm 45 and my my uh, the injuries I had occurred at five, 40 years ago, well, I'm an adult. Come on, I'm a big, strong man and I can do these things. No, because if I experience that disappointment by trying to take a boundary or voice or communicate my needs and I'm and I and I don't get what I'm hoping for, I feel like I was when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. Because our traumas stay locked at that developmental age. And I am so afraid of re-experiencing that. Come on, Graham, you're 45. I know, I know, I know. But it feels like I'm five years old and I don't want to re-experience that. Everything in my life I've done has been in the service of avoiding that. But here's what you're saying is so cool. If I stay in isolation, I'm not going to probably chance that. But if I'm in community where you're there with me and you're going to kind of hold me and kind of use the use the idea of weights a moment ago, you're kind of my spotter, like you're my, my emotional spotter where you're helping me lift the next heavy weight and you're helping me kind of get that, you know, fully extended into that full weight. You're there for me. You're kind of my safety net. And you're helping me kind of through a difficult time where I can build that emotional muscle to do right things in my life now that I can. And if I feel like I'm five years old, when it gets, when I fail, or the person doesn't respond in the way that I hope they would, you're there to kind of hold me up and to kind of soothe me through that and help me right size that. So here's where that community comes in, isn't it? Yeah, I love that you share that example, too, because it brought me back to my experience at Hazelden, where that is exactly what our community members experienced, where that is what helped them to stay sober. I know I'm going to come into this space with people who are going to lift me up and support me in the midst of me struggling. But there's another aspect to it. When I do this hard work, I also show up as a better community member to you. Yes. When I make the choice to say, you know what? I know I'm 45, but I've been running away from my past, running away from certain things because I don't want it to trigger me. That means you, the person who is present now, doesn't get a particular version of me. 
because yeah. I've been living my life in avoidance for so long. And yeah. so one of the things that I saw that was just so beautiful is that even in the midst of discomfort and pain, we got to see vulnerability yeah. where vulnerability was masked through drugs and alcohol for so long. Yes. And here you are crying for the first time because you gave yourself permission to do what felt so difficult and hard, but you did it. And it's so freeing. And not only is it freeing for you, the individual, it helps cultivate intimacy for the people around you because it's like, right. wow, I get to see a different version of you. And I know it's painful for you yeah. to feel this, but yeah. this is actually bringing us so much closer because I never saw this side of you. And now I know how to care for you and nurture you and just show up for you, maybe as a partner, as a friend, or just someone that we're in community with. Because I get to see a side of you that I know it's hard for you to experience, but it's actually bringing us closer together. Yeah. And that is a critical component of why I believe in community care so strongly, because our healing work isn't just to benefit us. It actually brings us closer to the people that we want to do life with. Yeah. And when I see you being vulnerable that way, that kind of gives me a little bit of courage of maybe I can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the same way I want to be there for you. I'm going to imagine you're going to want to be there for me if I begin to kind of become more transparent and unfolding of these things. You know, you talked earlier about this idea of, you know, you got to be willing to experience this emotional discomfort to stay in the suffering. If I'm by myself, that's the last thing I'm going to do. Yeah. That's why I drink. That's why I use. That's why I avoid. That's why I do all of these things. And what happens also when we start to use, the age at which we start to use, our emotional development is arrested. So I might be 45, but I started using when I was 12. So I have the emotional development of a 12-year-old. Frustration tolerance, postponed gratification, emotional muscle. Those are of a 12-year-old. I'm a 45-year-old guy in a 12-year-old, you know, emotionally developed EQ state. I'm not equipped to manage some of these things. But if I'm in a group, the good news is that our emotional intelligence, that can be developed. The ability to recognize my feelings, to recognize my needs, to manage them, to tolerate them, to modulate them, to regulate them. I can learn that in a group in ways that I can't learn that by myself. So I love the idea of this community more and more as you're talking. Yeah. And I want to add to that too, Graham, what was fascinating about this group that I loved is, you know, it can be really hard when you are an adult and you start to regress to childlike, childlike manners. Yeah. where you do have a stunted emotional EQ, yes. right? And so therefore, you kind of show up where maybe you're throwing tantrums. You kind of <laughs> right. show up as someone who is really difficult to be in relationship with because, yeah. again, you're an adult, but you're right. kind of acting like a child. Right, right. And my tantrum is just showing that I don't know what to do in this moment because it's th th this is above my emotional pay grade. I'm yes. having a difficult time here. My tantrum is to kind of push you away because I'm feeling too much anxiety, but I'm difficult to be in relationship with in that moment, aren't I? Very. It can yeah. be. It, it's the truth. I, I know a lot of people are listening <laughs> like, I know some people are like that, right? But right. here's the beauty about healing in safe spaces and healing in community. Because when we had those situations arise, there were so many times where conflict happened. And guess yeah. what? You had to deal with the conflict. <laughs> you have to deal with the conflict right here, right now. Yep. And so I think about when I would lead those groups and 
I, I would see attitudes and I would hear people sucking their teeth and I would see the frustration and I would say, you got to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You can't leave this room without talking about it. Right. And so the way person A is making person B frustrated, we're going to have to address it. And so I think there's beauty in also knowing that our broken selves that can be really hard to deal with and manage when we do the work of engaging in healing and healing in communal spaces, it also allows us to learn how to deal with conflict in a healthy manner. Because often that is why we run from people as well, because we don't know how to deal with conflict. And I think that that was another beautiful thing about my experience at Hazelden was people got to learn how to deal with the conflict now. You got to deal with it now. We are going to be in this room for 90 minutes, right? There's no other way around it. And if you guess what? If you don't deal with it today, we're going to be in (laughs) session tomorrow. And I remember, but I wrote it down. I'm going to bring it up. Oh, that's good. I'm going to bring it up because I love you. I'm going to bring right. it up because I, exactly, because I love you. But guess what? If you can do it here, that yeah. means you can do it when you leave the room. Yeah. And so you how know, can we also yeah. utilize community as a way to, to, again, manage our discomfort and really heal the conflict and the ruptures that happens yeah. in relationships as well? That's so good. You know, ideally, we get to grow up in a family system that provides us with all of these opportunities you're talking about to to help us with a healthy development, help us with a a healthy emotional development as we go through our years. But if we're not, you know, fortunate to have an ideal family system like that, we get to have a corrective system. Systems are systems. And what you're talking about, this community of healing can be that place where we can have these corrective emotional experiences to build trust, to learn what our needs are, to maybe feel deserving for the very first time, to watch other people doing the work themselves, which kind of encourages us and kind of models for us, oh, that's how you do it. And then to be there for us kind of as a safety net as we try these things on, maybe for the very first time, and how they emotionally spot us and relationally spot us to allow us to have those corrective emotional experiences. It can be so very healing. Very, very, very healing. That's so cool. I hope for everyone to be able to experience it. You know, that's why I'm an advocate for not just going to therapy, but I say if you can join a group therapy service, that can be so, so transformative. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I am so enjoying our time today, and I want to find out more about your book, Own Your Own Struggle. And I want to hear about the chapters in it, your impetus for writing it. And we're going to schedule another time for you to come back. But I wonder if you would do something just for today's show. Would you leave us with a final message about the power of community and the healing that can take place and ways our listeners might consider building in more community into their lives? Yes. So, you know, to deconstruct community really quickly so that people know where to go and what to look for or how to even start that process, I utilize the circle of support model to help people build community. That circle of support model covers four different domains. The first domain is your circle of intimacy. Generally, your circle of intimacy is your family, but I always say sometimes your family is not safe. So think of the people in your life who you have super intimate relationships with, people who pretty much are like family, even if they are not family. And those people will probably fall into your circle of intimacy. 
The next domain is your circle of friendship. And I always say, remember that friendship falls on a spectrum. So there are going to be people in your life who are an acquaintance. Some are close friends. Others are best friends that you might even consider a soulmate. So think about the people in your life who fit within the spectrum of friendship and who they are. And those are the people that you can be relying on when it comes to getting support, being vulnerable, but also seeking psychologically safe spaces. The next domain is your circle of participation. And this is really important. Our circle of participation is pretty much the environments that we expose ourselves to that allow us to develop healthy relationships. Some people don't have a circle of participation at all. And this is why loneliness is on the rise for a lot of people, especially now that we are working from home, we are becoming more disconnected from meeting people and the opportunities to meet people. So I want people to think about their circle of participation. How can you do the work of making new friends, joining groups, doing things that allow you to build a network of support? And the last thing is your circle of exchange. These are your paid and professional networks. If you have a therapist, that person is your circle of exchange. Your primary care physician is your circle of exchange, right? So I want you to think about the paid and professional networks that exist in your life because there are going to be times where we need care that the people in our circle of intimacy and circle of friendship can't give us. If I break my leg, I can't ask my friend to perform surgery on me, right? Same way if my mental health is suffering, I may need a therapist and not a person who is just my friend or my partner who I can talk to. So think about the people who exist in your circle of exchange. And that is how I define community. I think those four domains really helps to increase our mental health from a holistic standpoint. And so I really encourage people to take the time to reflect and think about their own circle of support in their lives. Outstanding. That's a great takeaway message. Thank you for that. I would love also for today's show for our listeners to be able to follow up with you afterwards. Our show today here, how can they do so? And how can they learn more about your book, Owning Our Struggles? Well, my book is available across all major book retailers. So you can buy my book wherever you um, prefer to buy your books at. You can also listen to it on Audible, and you can also get the Kindle version as well. And when it comes to staying connected with me, you can visit my website, ninab.com, where I share all of my resources. You can also sign up for my newsletter. And most importantly, I also have a podcast called Mindful with Mina, where I provide tips on how to build healthy relationships with ourselves and others. And so you can subscribe to my podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. So I thank you, Graham, for just having me on your show. And I'm really excited to potentially be back. We're going to have you back. I'd love to hear about your book. We'll go into some depth about that for our listeners to hear more about that too. But thank you for our time today. I've really enjoyed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before we wrap up, I have some exciting announcements. Mark your calendars for the upcoming Wellness Summit Series happening on March 23rd. The Wellness Summit Series is a one-day event featuring two heart-centered hypnotherapy experts, Kevin O'Neill and David Hartman, sharing their insights and techniques for harnessing the subconscious to help clients overcome trauma and reach their highest potential. To learn more and reserve your spot, you can register free at triadhq.com WSS. That's triadhq.com WSS. Also, you can find the Behavioral Health Today podcast on the Triad community. Come join our mental health community at hellotriad.com. 
to connect with mental health professionals, share insights, and engage in meaningful discussions. And lastly, I want to remind you that our episode archive and all of our resources for this episode can be found on our website at triadhq.com bht. We appreciate you being with us today, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.